Turn with me to John chapter 2. Back in our study of the book of John, just before Christmas we were there. John chapter 2, if you're visiting and need a Bible, we can put one in your hands if you don't have one. John chapter 2. We already covered uh, verses 1 through 12. We'll pick it up with where we left off. Verse 13. John chapter 2, starting with verse 13. Now the, Passover of the, now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold the doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. So when the Jews answered and said to him, what sign do you show us since you do these things. Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking to the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said to them, And they believed the Scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Let's pray. Father, we ask again now for the help of your Holy Spirit. You're called the helper, the comforter. Lord, you lead us and guide us and instruct us in righteousness. Lord, I need your help. I need your anointing. I need your strength. I need your filling. And Lord, I pray that you'd empty us, that our ears would be open, our hearts would be soft. We'd hear from your word. Lord, speak to us mightily, but also quietly, personally, that we grow this morning in your grace. And if anyone doesn't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, even today would be their day of salvation. We ask it in your name. Amen. I can imagine the first century converts and first readers of the gospel, they, they get this scroll from John, and they're reading along and they come to this section, and they might say, what just happened? Did Jesus just make a whip of cords and literally drive everyone out of the temple? Did I just read that? And if John was standing there, let's say it was in Ephesus, after he come off Patmos, John said, yep, you read that correctly. That's what happened. This particular moment and time is one of the most unique, unexpected, and stunning encounters in the life and ministry of Jesus. It's the first of two times that this takes place. Twice he drove everybody out of the temple. John's recording here is the first time it happened. This was in year one of Jesus' ministry. We just saw he was up in Cana. The second time it takes place is year three of his ministry, and it's just days before what? Days before the cross. In both cases... Nobody stops Jesus. Nobody even attempts to stop him. 
The Holy Spirit comes so strong upon him, everyone, there's like a wall preventing them from doing anything other than just obeying. By the way, God can make anyone do what he wants done at any time he wants to do it. Amen? Amen. It's just a matter of him deciding when that is. But the Holy Spirit ensured that this message, a strong message, was sent and delivered. But what Jesus does here, and if you're listening online, what Jesus does here is actually an act of his grace. Why? Because he chastens and corrects. I need God's chastening correction, don't you? I need it constantly. And everyone there had the opportunity to listen and respond to the Messiah, the Savior of the world. That's an act of God's grace. And it's after he clears out the temple that he speaks of a far greater grace. After he clears everybody else, he speaks of a far greater grace. What? That he would someday lay down his very own life, although he put it in language they didn't quite understand for the very sins and the very rebellion that he was confronting. If you're taking notes, you see the title this morning. He came to cleanse. Jesus enters and clears the temple. Turn your attention back with me to chapter 2. Pick it up again in verse 13. Now the pastor of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found the temple. And then you know he, he starts clearing it. Well, before he clears it out, he gets this whip ready. We'll look at that in just a second. But going back to, if you're taking notes, the first thing I want to look at is I've titled His Assessment. Jesus comes into the temple and he looks around. The second time he does it, the Bible's even more descriptive. He goes and looks all around and then he leaves. But going back to chapter 1, in the first few verses, you remember back in chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word what? Was God, remember chapter 1? Go back to chapter 1, those first few verses. We established a couple things. What? Jesus is God. We all agree with that, right? Jesus is God. But he's also sent from God. And he's equal to God the Father. And our minds can't comprehend that all those things are simultaneously true. Hold on. Those are contradictions of terms. How can you be three but only be one? How can you be one but be three? How can you be inside of time but outside of time? A lot of these things, they are hard for us to comprehend. We'll never in this lifetime, maybe not even in heaven, fully understand the complexity of the Trinity. God may never reveal the fullness of that, or he might, I don't know. But we're commanded to believe it because it's God's testimony of himself. Let me further remind us that within the relationship of the Trinity, Jesus the Son does what? He submits to what? The will of the Father inside the relationship of the Trinity. Jesus submits to the will of the Father. But he also represents the Father on earth. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Remember one of his names is what? Emmanuel, meaning God with us. And so as Jesus walked the earth, he was God, yet he was also the Son of God, fulfilling the will of his Father, and he names his Father here. He had the rightful title of God, 
and the rightful title of Everlasting Father, Isaiah 9, 6. Yet he came and lived out life as the Son. Are you thoroughly confused yet? Now as Jesus walked and went from place to place, he was always looking. You ever notice Jesus was always observing? Look at the fields, look at the birds. He was always looking, always observing what was taking place. This was true in individual lives. It was true in cities. It was true in the nation of Israel itself. God, of course, doesn't need to come and walk among us to see things. We all agree with that, right? He doesn't need to come down. The Scriptures are clear on this. Look at Psalm 11.4. The Lord is in His holy temple. goes on to say, His eyes behold. His eyelids see the Son of Man. God sits in heaven and sees not only everything on earth, He sees deep in every soul. Jesus saw this moment in eternity past, but He also saw it in the Incarnation. But His coming and His presence, Jesus being present on the earth was a further indictment of anything that was sin and unrighteousness that He confronted. You'd have a hard time saying, well, I didn't know this was wrong once Jesus had confronted you, right? I would have changed, but I, you didn't send me an angel. Well, I sent you my son. And the nation of Israel, and in fact all the world, they're further accountable for anything Jesus exposed. And by the way, what Jesus exposed and addressed on earth is just a fraction of what he someday will expose. It's good for us to remember that Jesus takes note of everything. This was manifested regularly in his earthly ministry. He would see the lame individual that no one else saw. He was invisible to everybody else. He sees Zacchaeus in a tree when no one else sees Zacchaeus. He sees the poor widow in the two mites. Jesus was always looking, perfectly aware of those that were longing for God, but he was also aware of those who were resisting God. Now, as we started John two weeks ago, he was in Cana, where he turned the water into wine. Remember on the map here, Cana, my clicker here, Cana was up in the north, Galilee. Jesus comes down to Jerusalem. See him coming straight down through, well, he probably didn't come through Samaria there, but he could. But he comes down to Jerusalem, it's the time of Passover. Nobody is aware that the Passover lamb that's going to cover the sins of the world is approaching. John here, in your Bibles, you might have taken note, maybe you didn't, maybe you didn't even notice it, John called it the Passover of the Jews. It's right there in your text. Which, John saying that, is helpful in informing Gentile readers of the Jewish festivals. But I also agree with biblical scholars that this might also inform us or reveal that the worship had become religiosity. Why would we think that? Well, back in Exodus chapter 12, it's called the Lord's Passover. The Lord's Passover. That the very one that gave Moses the tabernacle plans, the layout of the outer court, the inner court, 
the holy of holies, the priesthood. None are aware of exactly who is approaching Jerusalem and the temple. Jesus enters the city, the city he had chosen as God in the Godhead. And he walks directly into the temple, probably through, through the beautiful gate or the east gate. I bought this painting when I was in Israel the first time in 2013. You can see on the edges, it's actually painted on Jerusalem stone. Painted on the same stones that virtually 99% of the city is made of. And uh, the, the artist there, Benny Rosen, um, just, just we, me and my wife, we just loved all the paintings that were actually on the stone. And so I brought this back, and, and, you, and notice how high the temple is elevated above the cityscape. Keep that in mind a little later because it was highly elevated. It was like uh, the temple itself made of marble, the sun would hit it, but the complex was massive around it. You'll see that a little bit. Jesus walks into this temple. And by the way, we had a great conversation with the gallery owner about the Messiah and Yeshua and the gospel. But I really love this rendition painted on the Jerusalem stone. Now as Jesus enters the temple, he begins assessing what he sees. And it's not a good scene. It's not a good scene to our Savior at all. As uh, G. Campbell Morgan states, the outer courts of the temple had been turned into a veritable marketplace. For our understanding, it looked like the mall. Well, not the mall now because nobody's there. But, you know, back when people would go to the mall and it was packed and... It, like uh, Christmas in the 1980s and stuff like that, when it's just wall-to-wall people. For its time, this was a massive money-making operation. This was a cash cow. During the Passover, hundreds of thousands of Jewish pilgrims would come from all over the Middle East, Africa, Europe, and the Mediterranean, all over to remember the Passover feast. The temple would be made available. Animals would be sold as sacrifices. But the only coins they would accept would be the one specific temple currency that they approved of. Anything else required an exchange. You ever exchanged money like you know, a lira for a dollar? You ever exchanged anywhere and you've been in the airport and you exchange? You get the exchange rate. Well, they would do the exchange rate plus a profit on top of it. Then they would also take a profit on the animals. And by the way, Jesus specifies doves. You could do extra markup. Little tiny doves, you, you can get doves fast, easy, and put 10x. It's like people selling water uh, after a hurricane and saying, all right, this bottle of water it was a two bucks, now it's 12. The outer court which was the only place that the Gentiles were allowed to come into, the only place where the Gentiles could come and pray to the God of Israel, was within this massive temple structure. I'll show it to you in just a few minutes. The inner court was only for the Jews, and then in the inner court, the beginning of the inner court was, was, the, temple of, was the court of women, and then the men could go past that. But only Jewish women and Jewish men could go to the inner court, and only the men could go into or past the court of women, but now that outer court, and matter of fact the whole temple, because everything would have vibrated off the walls, had been turned into, instead of a quiet place of reverence for the Lord, it was now a busy 
thriving marketplace. If you've been to marketplace in Israel or parts of the Middle East, you kind of know what those marketplaces look like. It's wall-to-wall people and just uh, bidding and and not just there, but you've been to Southeast Asia and things like that, you know what these marketplaces look like. But Jesus sees it, knows what God had designed for it, and he's thoroughly disgusted by it. Do you ever think Jesus looks down at the church and is thoroughly disgusted? Well, we know that's true because he wrote a letter to seven churches. And he tells us quite clearly that he was rather disgusted with some of what he saw in the churches. So this isn't the last time Jesus will inspect the house of God. Amen? But it's a very visible time. So we have his assessment. Let's take a look at, if you're taking notes, his authority. Do you believe Jesus has the authority to make this assessment? Do you believe he has the authority to make a judgment on it? And then take action on it? If he has the authority, then the answer to all those is yes. With Jesus' assessment of the temple marketplace, comes a mighty response. After he kind of looks at it, is thoroughly disgusted in his spirit, he decides what he will do. It's not a quick temper response, is it? Not at all. After his observation, he takes time to make a whip of cords. Interesting that he would be at the end of his life whipped with cords. But here he makes a whip of cords. And in that same city, authorized by those same leaders. But he makes a whip of cords. Now remember that the temple was to be a holy place, a place of worship, a place of purity, a place of reverence. The high priest, when the high priest would have put on this turban, there was a gold plate, and on the gold plate, this was all the way back given to Moses, on the gold plate it said right here on the front of the turban, it was always be in front of the people, holiness to the Lord, in capital letters. Of course it was in Hebrew, not in English. Holiness to the Lord. Everything Jesus saw here was not holiness. It was an affront to the holiness and an affront to the character of God when you're ripping people off, that's an affront to the character of God. Jesus loves the poor and downtrodden. The world doesn't mind taking advantage of them. And in our country, we have a lot of things for political hypocrisy. They don't mind it either. But Jesus is appalled at the vain religion, the greed. He's not surprised by any of this. He already knew what he would find. But he's exposing it for us and for them. Uh, But he sees this vain religion. He sees the greed. He sees... The ignoring of God's commands. Everything that was given to Moses, I mean, they weren't ignoring all of it. They kind of had a mix of Moses' stuff and their stuff. Which is kind of what we do today. We kind of blend, all right, a little bit of God, a little bit of the world, put it together, laser light show, church service. Right? Sorry if that offended anybody. I apologize. I'm not saying that all that's bad. I'm simply saying that we can get to the place that instead of the actual Word of God, instead of actually the Spirit of God, we're just following the methods of man. And they weren't raping, killing, and pillaging people. They were selling wares, and that was an affront to Jesus. We have to take note of that, amen? This was a big deal to him, that they had turned something holy into something uh, uh, profitable. The only thing that should profit should be in our souls. 
but they were ignoring the commands of God. They were abusing and taking advantage of the poor. And I mentioned the doves. The doves were primarily sold. Jesus mentioned the doves. He specifically, go back to the text there, uh, he drove them out and he said to those who sold the doves, he's specific about the dove selling. Why? Because the doves were for the poorest of people. And most of the time, take a pandemic. Let's say the price of everything goes through the roof. Hollywood's fine. Uh, my billion, I can still buy all that. I'll still be eating the best stuff. But the poorer you are, the bigger impact it has on you. And so Jesus understood that the selling of the doves, the markup on them, even if it was dirt cheap, and then they mark it up, it, it could wipe out their entire savings. It could wipe out everything that they have. Whereas the rich, eh, so what? I got plenty. Then Jesus, after he sees this, he's made the whip. He literally begins to crack the whip. Literally begins to crack the whip. He's tossing, he's overthrowing the tables, flipping the tables, tossing the money, driving out everyone, people and animals. Now many scholars believe that the whip only touched the animals. Many scholars believe that. We don't know, we weren't there. Uh, many scholars believe it didn't even touch the animals, that he just used it for sound. You ever take a whip on, on, on a hard surface like Jerusalem stone, it may, and it would echo because the temple is all stone, it would be very loud as he's cracking the whip on the ground. So he didn't really need to hit anybody with it. But even if he did, they would deserve it. Right? Whom the Lord loves, he chastens. <laughs> so it's like, uh, but we don't know either way. But many scholars, I tend to believe that he was just using it, cracking it on the ground, but flipping everything and saying with a very clear message, a loud and clear message, and this was the message, exit the temple now. And everyone did. And he tells them the temple is not just a place. He says, this is my father's house. Not just a place, not even just a place of worship. It's his father's house, his chosen resting place on earth. Where? Inside the Holy of Holies, between the cherubim, at the Ark of the Covenant. Just above the Ark. But he said, you've made it a den of thieves. You know what you also could say, if you're listening online, what you also could say, not just a den of thieves, you could say den of sin. Because any, anything that you name a sin covers all sins. If you've, guilty, if you've broken the law in one point, you're guilty of what? All the law. He could have said den of sin. That would have really got under their skin. Although calling them all thieves when they're the religious leaders, that's pretty harsh too. A den of thieves. Can you imagine the scene though? Everything was going normal High priest, how are we doing money-wise? It's a banner day, boss. But then out of nowhere, Jesus is over making this cord. No one's paying attention to him. All of a sudden, the switch gets flipped, and the Holy Spirit comes upon him, almost like a Samson kind of moment, you know, and begins to drive everybody out of the temple. This is a scale model. I took this picture the second time we were in Israel. This is a scale model of the temple how massive the temple was, to give you just an understanding of how big it is, uh, this is based on Josephus' writings and um, it was reproduced to scale. That's 22,000 square feet 
where you stand. I'm standing way, those of you that went with us in Israel, you, know, you stand on this big kind of walk around that goes around. You see a door way back there in the corner on the other side. You can put several hundred people walking around this, but it's a scale model. To give you an idea, like the inner court is right, the inner court's right here. The inner court's right there. If you took a bunch of these houses, they'd fit in the inner court. You could put plenty of houses right there in the inner court. The outer court is all here. It's two sides. You see the little lattice wall. The little lattice wall that the Gentiles couldn't go past those little lattice walls. Then the Jews could go into the inner court, and the women could only come up near the front there. It's, it's, you can't see it past the wall because you're looking at it. But Jesus clears the marketplace, we believe, was all in here. Huge. Hundreds. Thousands of people. One man drives out thousands by himself. What a scene. Understand, because Jesus is God, he's perfect, he's holy, and he's just. He had every right to judge and correct what he saw. Amen? He had every right to judge and correct what he saw. Did you know he had a right to do even more than what he did? He could have called down fire from heaven. He has that kind of power. He could have done more. He actually restrains his hand, although it's a powerful exhibit of his authority to drive literally everyone out of the temple, and no one could stop him or did stop him. Though you know they wanted to. You see, Jesus makes a judgment. And he acts on that judgment, but only within a limited scope. This was just a limited scope judgment and reaction to it for that time and place. At the end of the age, listen carefully, at the end of the age, his, judgments on, his judgment on all matters is going to be rendered. And that judgment will be final. Amen? The, that judgment will be final. And it will be without mercy at the final judgment to anyone that has rejected his grace, his sacrifice, and his forgiveness. Some people say, well, that's just cruel. No, no, no. At this moment, he's restraining. There's grace still at this moment. He didn't kill anyone, didn't send anyone to hell. Everyone was banished out of the temple to make the statement to their hearts. But then and now, there was then and there is now the opportunity, praise God, there's the opportunity right now. We're under the age of grace. They still were as well. The opportunity to hear his voice. And here's the most important thing, America, the body of Christ, brother and sister, to heed his voice. Amen? It's one thing to hear his voice, but will we heed his voice? Will we heed his correction? They could have said to themselves, they should have said to themselves, Instead of questioning Jesus, which we'll get to in our last point here, they could have said to themselves, how did we become so callous that we're treating God's temple like it's the marketplace? That's what they should be asking themselves. You ever been corrected by your parents? And first your response to the rebellious teen is, how dare they? But then you start to think, what was I thinking? Why did I think I could get away with that? Why did I think that this was okay for me to do? Why did I think it was okay for me to run my mouth like that? That's a good question. When we start to question ourselves in a godly way, it would be good for them to all say, how do we get so callous that we turn the... T who do we think we are? And who does America think it is sometimes shaking its fist at God, right? 
Who do we really think we are? How do we get this callous? How did the body of Christ get so callous that it's so lukewarm right now in America? We can't get, him, can't get people to come to prayer meetings. You, uh, I got, uh, I, my life's too busy. And in our country, it's sad. When did we lose the fear of the Lord? When did they lose the fear of the Lord? This had been going on for a long time. Jesus is the first person to expose it. John the Baptist probably said stuff about it too, but he never went in there and cleared it out like Jesus did. I mean, Jesus not just exposed it, he addressed it in a powerful way. They had a do-what-we-want kind of mentality, which is the same as we have today. We'll do whatever we want. Doesn't matter what God says. It's interesting Nobody but Jesus could clear the temple like this. And he did it two times. As a single man. Why? As a single individual. Because he had the authority to do it. He had the power of the Holy Spirit. The Bible says he spoke as one with authority. Just his voice. When you hear his voice, you knew it was with authority. And yet even with all that, what they saw and they witnessed, they still questioned him about it, didn't they? They're still like, "Ah, who gives you the right to do this? They wanted more proof that he had the authority to chastise and rebuke them. You've been driving down the road. You've been driving down the road. You're driving um, down the highway, and as soon as a police car pulls in behind you, you immediately check your speed. You check. You tug on your seatbelt. You look at the inspection sticker. Is that the right date? Literally, you will do all of these things. You'll even see. How's my attitude? Why? Because you recognize that there's an authority in your presence. You don't need more proof. You see the police car, you see the thing on the side, that's Chesterfield County Police or Henrico or Richmond City or whatever it may be. But then, if on the same way, highway, a Domino's pizza car pulls behind you, do you do all that stuff with a Domino's car? No, you want to dial up Domino's at that point, you know, get on your ass. Order a pizza, but you're not checking your seatbelt and checking the speed when a Domino's car with a little thing on the top of the roof pulls behind you. That's different than the sirens up there on the roof. But so many there were still blind. They couldn't see that the one with far more authority than an officer, than a police officer, far more authority than a judge, far more authority than a king was in their presence, they still were blinded by sin and darkness. They couldn't see it. That one who had far more authority, he was holy, he was righteous. He was both the Son of God and he was God in human flesh. That although he had judged their greed and their false religion, He would someday judge the entire world. Are you listening online? Someday God, through His Son Jesus, He'll sit on a throne, He'll judge the entire world. He'll make an assessment of everything. They didn't realize that that's who was in their presence. He judged everything because He's holy and He's righteous. That His authority, the authority of Jesus is found in the root of the Word. Author. Authority. His authority is found in the root. It's not just that he's the author of his teaching. But he's also the author of the very law that the priests were given. He's the author of the temple itself, the blueprint, 
everything of the design. He's the author of that. But most importantly, brother and sister, Jesus is the author who originates and creates everything. He's the author of all life. He's the author of every design. When scientists are amazed by something, Jesus is the author of all of it. And the author has authority. But for you and I, the greatest thing of all of that is he's the author of our salvation. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation. He, had author, he already authored the world and the universe, but then he authored salvation by coming. And that's the issue. Will they obey the words of the author, of the one with authority? Will they obey his words or will they reject both them and us? Well, we're going to have to answer to him when life ends. Every single person, well, I don't believe in Jesus. Well, you're going to meet him. Well, I don't really still believe in him. Doesn't matter. You don't have to believe that there's universes out there, but they're out there. You don't have to believe in gravity, but go jump off your house and you'll find out it's, it's there. You know, so they'll answer to him. We'll answer to him. Paul calls Jesus the righteous judge. In 2 Timothy 4, 8, finally there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but all those who have, and there it is, loved his appearing. Do you love Jesus' appearing? Do you love his first coming, and that's why you're saved, and you're loving his second coming, where you're going to spend eternity with him? By the way, Jesus being the, um, the righteous judge is really good news if you're already in him, amen? It's not good news if you're outside of him. If you haven't surrendered to him, if you're not obedient to his voice, you definitely don't want the righteous judge ruling on your life if you're still your own God, if you still believe you're your own God. You do not want Jesus ruling, making a ruling on your life if you still believe that you have control of your own self. And that was the problem there at the temple. They had no fear of God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Wisdom. It wakes us up to dumb things we're doing. Snap out of it. You know, it, 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 the fear of the Lord is a good thing. They had no fear of God, but they also had no love for God. They had a fake, a pseudo-love for God, but they, did, they didn't have a fear of God or love for God. Why? Because they had not yielded to God. They hadn't yielded to Him. And sadly, did you know that soon after this, they will return and all the market stuff will come back in? As soon as Jesus gets out of town... Bring it all back in, boys. That, they would have said stuff like this. He was kind of nutty or crazy or whatever else, but bring it all back in. Let's get back to normal. We hear that a lot in our country. Let's get back to normal. Let's get to revival. Let's get to hearing from God instead of just back to normal. Because a lot of times normal is ourselves. It's, it's our own ways. It's not the ways of the Lord. But sadly, they'll return to these same marketplace practices. Keep in mind, the second time the second time that Jesus comes to clear the temple, which will be two years after this moment, so exactly two years later after that, spring two years after, the second time he comes is directly related to his closing words and their response. And it also underscores all of this was done in his love. All of this done in love. Why do we say that? Turn back your attention. Let's look at the, the second part of this. He clears out the temple... 
Let's just pick it up with verse uh, 17. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. And he makes it clear, it's his father's house. It's his father's name that his zeal was for, that his father's name was, def- was defamed. So he had that zeal. Then verse 18, so the Jews answered and said to him, what sign do you show us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. And the Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build the temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said to them what he had said to them. And they believed the scripture and the word Jesus said. Again, when he comes back two years later, everything related to what will happen that final week that final time he clears the temple is related to these words right here. He's like, this is what's coming. And I'll close with our final point this morning, what I've titled his announcement. His announcement. We saw his assessment. We saw his authority. This is his announcement. They asked Jesus for a sign of his authority. After all, nobody else had ever, had ever stopped them from doing this in the temple. No one else had put a stop to it. Jesus did albeit temporarily, no one else had better put a stop to their money-making machine. And he did. And they're like, who gives you the right to do this? Give us a sign. Show us something amazing. Uh, that was pretty amazing itself, right? Uh, I, I, he could have said, I just drove all of you out. Every single person. That should be sign enough. His answer probably seemed as bizarre to them as his out-of-nowhere zeal that cleared the temple. Because he says, destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it back up. That, that was not the answer they were expecting. That was not the sign. They thought, well, he would call down fire like Elijah. He would do something that showed that he was worthy or that God would speak with a loud voice, which he'd already done in his baptism at the Jordan River. Anytime, anytime people shake their fists and say, God, show me this and I won't be an atheist, God never responds to that. You realize that, right? Never does God respond to that. It's always you have to humble yourself. Then God will show you. But if he's already given you his testimony, which in this case he already had. And he's of course already done signs and wonders. They might be aware of some of them. Word may have come from Cana, what he had done there. Uh, They may have witnessed some of his miracles. But they still want him to prove then and there that he has the authority to correct and rebuke them. And his answer goes to the heart of his mission. He says, destroy this temple in three days, I'm going to raise it back up. They're incredulous at that response. And that was, an, that was one of the, he's speaking of the greatest love that will ever be poured out in the world, and this has them miffed. What do you mean you're going to tear down the temple in three days? They love the temple structure. They love the religiosity. They love the power they've amassed. They love that the people praise them. They love all this stuff about the temple. They just don't love the God of the temple. This is America. We love the dollar bills we have. We just don't love the God that says in God we trust. We love all the stuff God can give us. We love all the stuff and trappings around things. But, and that was their problem. They didn't love the God of the temple. They loved the temple. They loved the building. Even the disciples, remember when Jesus talks about, by the way, this temple, his temple is going to be destroyed, and the temple would also be destroyed in 70 AD by Titus. When Jesus talked about that, they were marveling at it. Even the disciples said, look at that thing. It's bigger than the city. It dwarfs everything around. It's one of the wonders of the ancient world. 
But they knew that since Herod had begun this massive expansion project and the, res- uh, the renovations of that temple that was originally rebuilt by Zerubbabel, Herod had expanded. This had taken decades. So they, again, they weren't spiritually minded. They could not understand Jesus was talking about himself. They thought he was talking about the walls. And actually he was talking about both because the temple would be destroyed. But he was specifically talking about himself, that he was going to lay down his life. And when he says one more time, two years later, when he says this again, two years later when he says destroy this temple in three three days I'll raise it back up, the second time he says that, which would come two years later, they'll be even more furious when he says it the second time and even more furious about him clearing out the temple a second time, but they're also outraged because their love for a building and a love for a religious system that serves themselves. They're outraged that 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 could be taken away from them. And in doing so, when he says it the second time, they're going to fulfill what he says here. Does that make sense? He says it here, it's a precursor. Two years later he says it again when he clears up the temple, and then they'll act on it and they'll crucify him within days of saying it. Amen? That's what's going to take place. He's, he's, he's telling them the future right here. He's announcing that he is going to die, but they're the ones that are going to destroy his body, his temple, later in the New Testament. We're, our bodies are called the temple of God. But they'll destroy his body by having him crucified, thus fulfilling that he is the Passover lamb that entered at this Passover and the coming Passover. He will be the Passover lamb. All those animals that they're selling can't atone for everybody's blood or everybody's sin, only his blood, only his shed blood. And that will reveal that Jesus came, what? Not just to cleanse the temple, but to cleanse the whole world. And the individual souls need the shedding of his blood. Understand, when he came to the temple that day, he came in love. He came in grace. How do they respond? With refusal and hate. And it would get worse by the time he got to year three. Their hate would build and build and build until the plan, they say, Pilate, kill him. He's cleared out the temple twice. He tells us that the temple's going to be destroyed, and, and wackily he says it's going to be rebuilt in three days. But he was always talking about himself. Let me close, though, with this. That's kind of a, what's taking place, because what Jesus does here is a foreshadow of his sacrifice and his death. But let me close with something of a more personal application. Those of you listening online, those of you watching, if you belong to Jesus, what's in the courtyard of your heart that he wants to get rid of? If you belong to Jesus, what's in the courtyard of your heart that he wants, says, it's got to go? That's of you, it's not of me. You've allowed that in for too long. It's been festering in the courtyard and it needs to go out. What's in the courtyard of your heart that if you know the Lord, if you don't know the Lord, if you've never come to Jesus, are you ready to surrender to his absolute authority, but also his love and grace, and turning you from yourself and your sins to truth, his truth? You've come to Jesus. Are you ready to accept his amazing grace? Or if you've not come to Jesus, are you ready to accept his amazing grace and his offering offer of salvation. He, he alone is the author and the finisher of our faith. 
authored it, but finishes it because what he says here, he has to complete with the work on the cross, that dying of his temple, raising it back up. And so I just, as we come to a close, you can bow your heads. I just want to speak for just a moment, again, to anybody that's watching online or maybe you're here in this room, and this is an opportunity to just search yourself and say, Lord, Jesus, you don't miss anything. You observe it all. You see Zacchaeus up in the tree. You see the fields. You see the birds. You see the sparrow. But you see the sin, and you see the things that are in the court place, the courtyard of the temple, but you also see the things that are in the kind of courtyard of our hearts. And say, Lord, is there things that I've allowed that are of the world, that are of my own I'm going to do it my way. But God's saying, no, no, it's time to surrender all. You know that song, all to Jesus I surrender. And that's what the Lord wants to do. And just say, and sometimes if you can't even see it, because I love what I think it was Oswald Chambers said it, I was reading recently, you know, we don't know ourselves near as well as we think we do. So we have to have God show us, say, Lord, I can't even, is there stuff there? And then sometimes he might not show you till Tuesday. You might need to pray about this a little bit. Say, Lord, what's, what's there that doesn't belong? That's hindering me. Maybe it's a bitter spirit. Maybe you're so angry about politics that you have a bitterness in your spirit that's not allowing you to really be the hands and feet of Jesus. You can't be. I read uh, the other day, um, real maturity is loving those that don't like you. So... God wants to kind of clean all the junk out. Those of you watching, maybe, they, maybe you've never surrendered the obedience of Jesus. You still say, I, I'm a good person. Jesus says, you're not. Jesus says, I'm not. Jesus says, none of us are good. There's none good but God. And of course, that was himself. And, but he says, I, I'll give you my righteousness, but you have to surrender. You have to confess. You have to repent. So let's just bow our heads, and I want to pray first for, if, you're, if, you're not, if you don't know Christ and you want to be born again, raise your hand. In a couple weeks, we'll be looking at John chapter 3. We have to finish this John chapter 2. We have one little part next week. I believe I'll teach it next week. You don't want to miss it. He knows his own. It's really important about true conversion and false conversion. We'll be looking at that next week, but then we'll be looking at John 3, and where Jesus said, you must be born again. But we don't wait till we get to John 3 because someone might need to get saved today. Amen? If you're here and you want to give your life to Christ, just raise your hand. I want, to, I want to pray with you. I can't see if you're online. I'm going to pray anyway. Anyone at all, just raise your hand if that's you in this room or online. If the Lord's talk to your heart. Surrender to his authority. Surrender to his sacrifice. Surrender to his gift of grace and salvation. And then I'll pray a second prayer for all of us. Say, Lord, forgive us of things we've got in the courtyard of our hearts that we kind of have compromised. That was what, that's what started there in the courtyard. Originally, it was compromised. Let's just do a little bit of selling. Then it became a lot of selling. Then it wasn't just a lot of selling. Then it was a lot of ripping people off. And that's what happens. With, well, I'll just watch a little bit of this, and I'll, I'll, I'll tolerate a little bit of this in my life. And, and then it becomes something that Jesus says, no, it has to be vacated, cleansed completely. But aren't you glad he forgives us? I was reading uh, Hebrews this week, and said, you know, or I think it was Hebrews, no, James. It said, you know, we all stumble, it says. We all stumble. We all have it. But Jesus is there to correct it, cleanse it, and get us back on track. Amen? 
Let's pray. If you want to receive Christ, Lord Jesus, thank you for coming to die for my sins. Lord, I admit, I confess, I'm not good without you. I'm wretched, blind, and Lord, my sins would condemn me. But I ask, Lord Jesus, that you would cleanse and forgive me of all of my sins, most importantly, rejecting you for how many years? Forgive me of all of my transgressions. Cleanse me by your blood. Wash me, for I've decided this day to obey your voice and to follow you and to repent. Lord, write my name in the Lamb's Book of Life and fill me with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name I pray. And if you've done that, I pray that you would send us a note at questions at calvarychapelrva.com that we can pray with you and, and, and uh, help you grow. And for the rest of us, Lord, we ask the Lord that maybe we can't even see right now at 12 noon uh, what is in our hearts that needs to go. But Lord, I pray that you'd reveal it now or within the next hour or within the next couple. Lord, sometimes we have blind spots. We just don't see them, Lord. And there are areas of compromise. We pray that you would reveal them and that we would confess them and that you'd cleanse us for your gracious and kind to do so. We thank you for whom the Lord loves. He chastens and corrects. In Jesus' name we pray.